Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark of Mega Brands, and it's Tuesday, October 4th, about uh, a little after 8 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, we got a smart guy alert today. I'm talking to David Trainer from New Constructs. He is the founder and uh, he's a corporate finance expert. They are an independent research tech firm. Their focus is on fundamentals and valuations of public and private businesses. And I have to tell you, David, we we're just talking. It, this is going to be refreshing for me because everything has been so macro focused. Nobody cares about the fundamentals of the business because the market is just looking at federal, you know, the central banks and all the things that are happening with inflation and how they affect businesses and currencies and interest rate moves. And so a lot of the business fundamentals have kind of taken a back seat. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I've been in this business 30 years. In the end, fundamentals matter. Your company's ability to grow and service clients and get new clients and you know, generate, you know, new kinds of revenue, that all that stuff matters. We're just in this weird period of time where, where all that stuff is taking a backseat because there's so much uncertainty out there. So I'm looking forward to getting back to the fundamentals and that's what you do. So I'd love to start a little bit with, you know, just tell me a little bit about you and the firm and why you thought this firm needed to be created. Because, you know, as you know, there's a gazillion research providers out there, sell side by side. If you follow me at all on, on Twitter, I have, I, I'm, I mock the sell side a lot. So I, you know, I've even had some sell side analysts on the, the podcast and they were like, well, we, we first started, you know, I'm a sell side analyst. We first started engaging on Twitter where you bash my, my firm, not necessarily my firm, but my industry. So I, you know, I just learned in my career early at Merrill Lynch that, you know, you have to take a grain of salt with some of the sell side stuff. So I'd love to talk to you about your system because it seems really robust and really unique. So talk to me about that one first. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. You know, I I got 
my start uh, on the sell side as well. I, I joined Credit Suisse in, in 1996 in the equity research department, and they hired me out of an executive compensation consulting firm where my job was to go to boards of directors and say, look, whatever you do, don't pay executives based on accounting earnings because you can grow accounting earnings while running the business into the ground. And Credit Suisse hired me to take that concept and scale it globally across their equity research department, which was a, a big task, uh, but something that very deeply like resonated with what I wanted to do. Like When I first joined the exec comp consulting group, I was fascinated because I was introduced to this idea of reading the entire filing and looking at footnotes in order to really understand profits. And, and that really lit my fire. I, 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 you know, I'd never gotten anything about that in school or anything before. And so deeply interested in doing that and the opportunity to apply that globally across an equity research department was an amazing opportunity. Uh, and I, and I worked my tail off and we really made it happen. Credit Suisse had a special product called the value dynamics framework. We sold to some of our biggest clients in the world um, Brady Dugan, who is the global head of equities, gave me a $25 million budget to take this business to like you know, to make that project I started its own business. And then Frank Quattrone joined the firm. Uh, for those who don't know, Frank Quattrone is one of the biggest, maybe the best, most successful uh, tech banker of all time. And the uh, tenor of the research department changed just a little bit <laughs> when Quattrone and his folks joined. Um, my, my boss and mentor at the time was a guy named Michael Mobison. And um, he ran the morning call, and we had effectively restricted access to the morning call before Quattrone, only to people who were willing to talk about return on invested capital and quantify market expectations baked into their target prices and market prices. And uh, we tried to do that with the Quattrone folks for a little while, um, but then we got a call from Brady Dugan saying, hey, let these guys on call, you know what I mean? Um, and, I, and I saw, you know, as a fairly young um, professional, just really what Wall Street was about. I, I sort of saw how the sausage was made. I had meetings with senior research officials on on Quattrone's team, and you know they told me stories about how, well, hey, we can't use your model, David, because if we um, put our real numbers in there, the stock's going to look too cheap, um, or or the, the cash flows are going to look too low, and we can't put our our real earnings estimate in that model because it's nobody knows that. So wait, wait, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, stocks go up when they beat the number. So for all the companies we have a buy rating on, right, we have a low estimate out there to make it easier for them to beat. Uh, on the other hand, if we don't really like a stock, then we have a higher estimate. So if we put our low estimate into your, you know, discounted cash flow capabilities here, well, then the stock's going to look too, you know, too cheap for us to really justify our buy rating. And I said, so wait a second here, there's two sets of numbers. And they said, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I mentioned that to some of my other colleagues. They were like, no, don't tell me that. That's, yeah, I'm not supposed to know. That's, that's, a, that's a compliance issue. <laughs> um, and so what I really came to understand quickly, Eric, is that the kind of work I was doing at Credit Suisse was getting the way of the real business. And that was these big IPOs because we were having meetings about how they would make $200 million in a day just on the trading desk on a small IPO. And that the elephant IPOs were multi-billion dollar opportunities. And nevertheless, um, I, I pushed on. And, and as I said, Brady Dugan gave us a big budget to, to take this project and make it its own business. But I decided to, to, to drop that and become a more traditional sell-side analyst. 
And eventually Credit Suisse effectively failed to execute on that original business plan. Um, and that's when I decided to start New Constructs. Uh, my job up to, you know, while at Credit Suisse and building that platform, a lot of that was like reading 10Ks and 10Qs, the whole thing. I had stacks of filings, you know, chest high all around my office. And I did it so much that I started to think, you know, there's a lot of ways that companies trick people in the way they report things, but it's not unlimited. If, you know, if given how many of these I've seen and my team has seen over the years, if we get a machine to knock out nine, nine or 10 of the, you know, nine or 90 or 90% of these, well, shoot, well, then the machine could do 90% of the filing. And now we're becoming uh, many factors more productive. Plus, I felt like I could trust machines more than I could trust humans. Like I train people to do this kind of stuff, Eric, but like, how, I, how can I be sure they put the numbers in the right cell, right in the Excel file? Um, and, and so this, this idea of using technology just to make this really laborious work more productive was something that was kind of in the back of my mind. And when Credit Suisse effectively gave up on implementing the project that I started because it got in the way of doing business, um, I thought, well, maybe I should maybe I should look into whether or not technology can can help with with something um, like reading filings. And, and and a couple of years later, I decided to start new constructs. I mean, that what percent do you think of analysts read those ten you know those ten Ks and ten Qs? I mean, it's got to be small, uh, right? Yeah, I mean, even even before the tech bubble, it was it was a minority of analysts, very very small minority. Um, and, and they may they may take a look at income statement balance sheet, but not the footnotes. I mean, I would I would be surprised if more than one percent of sell side analysts, if any, because it's just not what they get paid to do here. They get paid to sell stock at the end of the day. They're paid to sell stock, not provide good research. Um, I knew to one guy, I think Mike Mayo and his team, those guys still read filings. Um, I work with Mike went back at the, the, the days of Credit Suisse. I know those guys do. There's probably a few others, but they're very few and far between. Mike is probably one of the most passionate analysts I've ever, I've ever heard. I mean, when he gets on and talks about his stocks, man, he is like, you're like, drop everything and, <laughs> and do it. That guy just knows what he's talking about. He's not always right. Nobody is, but you know, he, he's definitely seems to be definitely one of the good guys. So, so when you, I'm guessing you're somehow scraping the data from a 10 Q or 10 K and then is it keywords? I mean, is it, and then you're funneling down what you deem the most important words or factors and then kind of putting them in the right place. How does that work? Cause that's, that, that's a, I mean, like you said, I don't know how, what the average num number of pages one of these documents is, but it's an enormous document filled with stuff that, you know, the average, the average educated analyst sometimes would glance over and, you know, there, there's a lot of room for error, I suspect. So, so using technology has got to make that better. Yeah, I mean, you have to be really careful about how you use technology and recognize the limitations of the technology. Like, for example, we don't ever use the word artificial intelligence around here. I don't believe in artificial intelligence because it implies some level of sentience, like the machine can figure something out. And up to this point in the history of the human civilization, machines don't really figure anything out. They only follow instructions. So it's all about the highest quality instruction. And I think you got to make a big distinction you know, for, for people to really understand machine learning between unstructured activities like driving a car or going through a filing and structured activities like a game. 
like chess. Machines can do really well at chess because you have a very defined set of rules, um, immutable set of rules, and you have a, def a very strictly defined territory, right? The chess board. And within those two constraints, you basically have a, a limited number of scenarios. It's a very large number of scenarios, but it's a limited number of scenarios. When you deal in a, in a situation where there's driving a car or an SEC financial filing, you can't trust that people will follow the rules. And when you can't trust that they're following the rules, it means you have an, an infinite number of scenarios. So first thing I would say is that I don't know if we'll ever be, if there will ever be a point in time when the machines can read 100% of all filings, 100% automatically. There'll always be things that the machine will say, I don't understand that, I've never seen it before. Human, help me out. And so what we have sought to do over the last 20 years in developing this technology is to get the machine to handle more and more of the filing. So in the beginning, Eric, really what I what I built was, was a tool that would solve a couple of problems. The first problem was how to audit what went into the model or what data got collected and put into certain buckets, right? So did the right number from the filing go into the right cost of sales bucket, right? In the, in the model, right? Think of the model as, a, as we call it, the, the bucket structure. The buckets are all the data goes into. You've got a bunch of buckets for current assets. You've got a bunch of buckets for current liabilities. You've got a bunch of buckets for long, you know, for fixed assets and for long-term liabilities. And same is true for the income statement, right? You needed to be able to audit that. And, and so that meant I you know, the, the, the technology had to integrate the, the original filing and this bucket structure. So we could always search back through the technology to go to to exactly where the, the data was parsed from. You don't have that in Excel files, right? That was one of the biggest problems I had when I was at Credit Suisse. We could have a million people parsing data into an Excel file, but as soon as that data is parsed and they moved on, we have no way of validating they, they got the right data point, except to go back and redo what they did, which defeats the whole purpose of trusting someone to do something, right? So that was the original technology. And then there were basic tools that would help going through the filing be faster, and then there were basic sort of what we call data checks. Like, hey, if, if the analyst is parsing something and the income statement doesn't add up to the net income number, well, hey, it's not right, fix it. If the balance sheet doesn't balance, it's, balance, it's not right, fix it. If the cash flow statement sections don't balance, it's not right, fix it. And, and we probably have today a couple thousand of those little automatic data checks that, that fix the data. But make no mistake, this has taken a long time and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears because at the end of the day, what really gives our system an advantage, Eric, is that we've had experts go through tens of thousands of filings and specifically say, hey, this data point in this section of this filing should be treated in this way in your model, David. It should go into this bucket. This is an asset write-down um, on um, obsolete equipment in the acquisitions footnote, and it needs to go into the write downs bucket in the model um, here. And, you know, and the system automatically tracks where it was in the filing, puts it into the bucket. And we've had to do that thousands and thousands of times and thousands and thousands of different scenarios so that the machine can go through and say, oh, I recognize that this has happened in a similar way in a prior filing. I can make the call on this and put it into the bucket automatically. There's no substitute for this, this training data set, this library of instructions.
that the machines have to rely on to, to put data into buckets or to parse the buckets or parse the data. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so, so that the assumption there is that your data, because it's coming from much more robust detailed sources is probably better able to tell you what the company is actually doing today and, or what it might be doing in the future. If there's some extrapolation of, of the continuation, am I reading that right? No, that's, that's exactly right. So I, I created the data collection tool, honestly, because my clients, what they wanted, these were, these were very sophisticated portfolio managers at some of the biggest money management firms in the world. These guys were, you know, managed billions of dollars. This is in the, we started new concerts in 2003. So in the mid 2000s, these were the sort my target market. Right. And, and so in order to deliver these super high quality models to provide things like a high quality return on invested capital, a high quality free cash flow, I know I couldn't rely on the legacy databases from Bloomberg or FactSet or Thompson or Finitive or CapIQ or SP, because everybody at the sophisticated level of the business knew that those databases were unreliable because they didn't take into account footnotes. So I actually had to build the data collection system in order to be able to provide my clients with the high quality models that I used to build manually when I was when I was a Credit Suisse, right? It was all manual back then. And I felt, you know, the only way to ever make a business around this kind of thing work is to have technology collect the data. Because the bottom line was, was even when I was a Credit Suisse, it was very difficult for me to hire people to, to build models and to, to go through filings because my sales pitch wasn't very good. It's like, oh, hey, you can work with David Trainer and learn how to read a filing like Warren Buffett. Or you can work for Frank Quattrone and make a million dollars next week on that IPO. Uh, I couldn't compete with that. <clears throat> and so it was clear to me that, you know, there needed to be some sort of automation. I had no idea what that would look like. But the automation has always served creating a better financial model. And I believe that part of our advantage is, is that we're not just blind data collectors. We're not just saying, oh, oh, collect data and throw it into a database and, and, you know, leave it for someone else to interpret. We're interpreting the data for the purpose of building a best-in-class financial model. And because we know how to build best-in-class financial models, and we understand how accounting data reflects un, you know, certain underlying economic activities, we're smarter about what we need to collect from the filing. So there's some benefits there. There's some complexities in understanding accounting and finance and how to pull data from filings in order to produce the best measures of return on invested capital, of earnings, of cash flow in the world. So, so you know, we at, at AccuVest, we run a global consumer fund and, and strategy, right? The, the, the viewpoint of, of what we do is that, you know, global consumption is like 40 trillion a year. It's 60% of world GDP. So it's a pretty big thematic. And we, we identify the most relevant brands across different in spending categories, whether it's apparel or footwear or, you know, even, and, and it's not just consumer discretionary and consumer staples. So using this data, uh, one of the things that we do is we look at style factors and like return on invested capital, free cash flow yield, operating margins, all those kinds of things. So in your work, are there certain style factors that seem to, to be a better predictor of better returns? Because that's, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's looking to get an edge 
to be able to find the right things to own or avoid the right things at the right time so they don't have big losses or find an Enron or whatever the case is. So from your system, you know, what are there any factors? I mean, and we start, you know, we started this conversation with return on invested capital being such a great metric, you know, in your work, has ROIC kind of become the one of the gold standards of 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 better, you know, better stocks and better performance over time? Yes. I mean, return on invested capital has sort of been the gold standard from the beginning. I mean, Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations talked about the importance of measuring economic earnings, which is which of which return on invested capital is a very important part. Uh, when I first started in the business, EVA <clears throat> and CFROI were, were popular terms from compensation consultants. And these are all primarily based on return on invested capital. Eric, return on invested capital matters more than every other measure because it measures effectively what the market cares about, not because we say that's what it cares about, because that's what the market has to care about. So breaking down return on invested capital to its core components, it's it's how much cash flow a business generates relative to how much capital has gone into it. If you are you know, an individual or money manager or anybody, but think about return on invested capital the same way you think about your, your fund or your money manager. You give your money manager a certain amount of money and you measure what kind of returns they generate on that money. That's what you care about. You need to think about businesses in the same way because the stock market has to think about businesses in the same way. Because if the stock market allocates value to a business that doesn't generate an adequate return, then the market would effectively kill itself, right? If it, it allocated all of its value to businesses that went and eventually went bankrupt, because let's face it, people aren't willing to fund unprofitable businesses forever because then they just lose money, right? It just doesn't make sense. Um, so the market cares about return on invested capital because at its essence, it is sort of the most intuitive and natural way of measuring whether or not a business is actually profitable or successful or viable, right? If you're not making enough money to cover your costs um, and you're not generating enough profit to provide your investors an adequate return, then you know what are you doing? You're destroying value, and 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 if we let that go into perpetuity, you know we destroy our civilization, our civilization, <laughs> effectively, right? I mean, if all we do is just destroy capital, um, you know, then we destroy we, we destroy civilization, we destroy um, um, everything, right? I mean, you know, and that's that's part of why the integrity of capital markets is so important because if we start heading down that path and we start misallocating to bad businesses. You know, nobody suffers worse than individual investors. Nobody suffers worse than society. Well, I, I think it's mattering more, you know, in the last eight or nine years, duration, you know, with interest rates at zero, free money everywhere because the Fed does what it does. Was was ROIC as important? Uh, you know, you, you see all these companies, these profitless growth businesses where everybody just focuses on the long duration and the ability to, you know, grow at any cost, the, those stocks really performed well until the peak of the market. And, you know, let's, let's call it the middle of last year. And now all of a sudden, you know, you have all, you know, even companies like Uber and, you know, so, some of the great brands of those vintages are finally saying, okay. And I find it funny when I listen to Uber, the market has told us that we need to show a profit. I always laugh at that 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 conversation that Dara had with with earnings 
I'm just, the market has told you, how about <laughs> logic should tell you, you should have a business that generates cash and, you know, can, can generate more growth from the cash that you generate, et cetera, et cetera. But it is funny how we've just, we've kind of gone into that new world, you know, a, a year ago, really before it didn't seem to matter. I didn't, I didn't have much of a back test that went back and said, you know, if you took the S&P 500 and you took just, you know, three-year revenue growth or operating margins or RLIC, was there a particular factor that did well in the, in the zero interest rate policy world? But <clears throat> I suspect RLIC would have been good, but some of that, some of those other growth at any cost metrics might've been a better indicator of good returns until the music stopped. That's right. No, the, the ROIC and fundamentals definitely took a backseat for a long time there. And I, I agree with you. It was ultra low interest rates, uh, as well as I think excessive fiscal policy, right? Just flooding the economy with, um, you know, relatively free money. And and when you, you know, you make money cheap and free, you know, you're what you're doing is you're sort of forcing people to take more risk if they want to get return on their capital. And that's really what, what happened. And for a long time, I don't think a lot of investors really saw any risk in the market. I mean, look at the bailouts that we've seen going back to the financial crisis. I mean, a lot of those banks probably should have gone out of business beyond just Lehman. And executives took huge um, bailouts from taxpayers while still getting, you know, huge executive compensation um, benefits themselves. So, yeah, I, I think, yeah, ROIC for a long time, fundamentals for a long time had to take a back seat because, I think just too many investors were were really sucked into this belief that you just buy the dip and, right. you know, you buy more. The, the, the solution to when stocks go down is to buy more of them. <clears throat> and I think it led to this sort of mania where people just didn't pay attention to fundamentals and they didn't believe they needed to. And there's no better example than that, I think, than the meme stocks, Eric. I mean, goodness gracious, like I, if you'd ever asked me <clears throat> was possible for a, an utterly profitless, near bankrupt business or set of businesses to skyrocket uh, up the way they did, I would say, no, 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 the market could never be that efficient. And then here we are, and it happened multiple times and it persisted. And it's, it's a shame because at the end of the day, I believe that these individual investors, they, they think that they're sticking it to the institutions. They think they're sticking it to the man. And in reality, they're not. Uh, the institutions know what the retail guys are going to do before they do it. So the institutions can ride these speculative waves and they know when to jump off before the wave crashes because they see the order flow. Yeah. And, and Robin hood made their business. I mean, that brand got to where it is through those meme stock periods. You know, and and Robinhood might even be a meme stock in in, in and of itself. I, I can't figure out how. I mean, the brand is really strong in its category with a certain demographic, but I can't figure out how they actually will eventually make money. We'll see, and maybe maybe, and I'll get back to the ROIC. But you know, one of the one of the the uh, the reports that you do is a zombie stock report. So I'd love, you know, I'd love I love the title. It's got a little shock value. Would love to hear more about, you know, some of the reports that you guys do. And we, then we can get back. I have some other questions on, on ROIC and free cash flow yield as, as factors. But talk to us about the zombie report, because that that's pretty important right now with, you know, lots of stocks crashing back to, to kind of reality. And maybe there's a lot more reality to go. Yeah, you know, um, 
one of the benefits of being focused on fundamentals is that since uh, since really the, uh, the 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 crazy IPO boom in the in, in twenty twenty and twenty twenty one, we we were pointing out that these were were really bad businesses and um, and we were right about a lot of those. I mean, whether it was Sweet Green or Robinhood or Uber or Coinbase, Compass. Um, a lot of bad businesses came out, and and the, the 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 reason we didn't call them zombie stocks back then is because you know, the markets were still flush with so much cash, and companies were able to roll over their debt because everyone thought, well, there's it was the the, the money was so cheap that if you needed ever needed more debt, well, you just go back and get some more and just go on forever. And we we've I think you mentioned already there were a lot of these profitless growth at any cost stories that. It's kind of ridiculous, right? And you're even hearing the private equity people back off on all that. And you're hearing people like Dar at, at uh, Uber saying, oh, well, non-GAAP EBITDA is no longer a metric we want to use because it doesn't actually measure profits. It's, you know, again, it defies logic. So but more recently, um, probably four or five months ago, we started a zombie stock list because we saw interest rates were going to be persistently higher. The Fed wasn't just saber rattling anymore. They were going to raise rates and rates were going to stay up which meant money was going to get tighter, which meant that these profitless businesses were going to have a whole lot harder time borrowing to keep their business alive. And so we went through and we screened our database for companies that had a negative interest coverage ratio, which meant that they didn't have enough pre-tax cash flow to cover their interest payments. That's a bad sign. <laughs> um, and then we also coupled that with companies that had a big negative free cash flow burn, and limited cash flow in the books, which meant that they could only sustain their current cash flow burn for 24 months or less. For some of these companies, it's like two or three months, right? So a few things to, to summarize. Losing a lot of money, not a lot of cash to sustain that money loss, and not enough cash to cover their interest payments. So we were thinking like, you know, I mean, zombie stock makes sense. How is this business going to survive? Who wants to lend a business that's burning a bunch of cash, any more money when they've shown no track record of ever making money. And so that's that's the crux of a lot of the zombie stocks. They also tend to have really expensive valuations too, because they've been these growth stories. So there's been a lot of downside. And we've we've made clients a lot of money on the zombie stock list already, just a few months. So where where, you know, collectively, and if you want to mention names, that's fine too, or if you can't, that's fine. But where are we, do you think, in, you know, if you look at the holistic list of the zombie stock uh, thematic, massive damage has been done to, to most or all of, of those kinds of stocks. Are we halfway through? Are we in the seventh inning? Are we in the ninth inning, do you think? I mean, you know, I, I suspect there will be some bankruptcies over the next 12 months or so, but, you know, if love to hear your view on on that part of it because in some ways that's that is a leading indicator of when the market bottoms that was the first thing that rolled over and and maybe when the zombie stocks are all trading under three bucks you know maybe we get you know kind of a more a, a more of a lasting bottom i don't know we'll see yeah you know look uh my uh, crystal ball is in the shop so the timing questions is, is <laughs> um I do think that we are in the late innings, innings for sure. I mean, I think, you know, seventh inning plus for sure. Um, but, you know, look, I think that the, the speculative movement is not going to go down without a fight. 
I mean, look at what we've seen in the last couple of days. The market's rallying right after the, you know, after the really tough third quarter. And we're seeing the market up strongly here, you know, and it makes no sense. And some of the stocks that are up the strongest are zombie stocks, uh, for that matter. Um, and and you just shake, you shake your head, you know, I mean, how a company is like a firm or Blue Apron or Carvana, like they're just burning tons of cash in their businesses, have really no no moat, no, almost no barriers to entry, no economic value. Um, and, and yet they, they rally. I mean, the same is true with, with AMC and GameStop. I mean, you know, I mean, they're just, you, you listen to these, these uh, calls from um, the, the executives, the earnings calls, and it's just, they're just saying whatever they think they need to say in order to titillate retail investors and keep them sort of snared in the trap. So, yeah, I think we're close closer to the end than we are at the beginning for sure. But I, I think we're going to see a lot of these bear market rallies. Um, I think the Fed, I think their biggest goal, Eric, is to make sure that this isn't be, doesn't become like a, a, a major sort of crash that just takes everything down with it. I think they're going to try to make it as gradual as possible. They've been trying that. Um, so, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a doomsdayer. But I do think there are plenty of pockets of stocks that, that can go to zero and a tight credit environment should go to zero. And, and frankly, I believe they need to go to zero in order for us to really emerge from this stronger than we are now. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's the key. They need to. Before, when things got really bad, particularly in the credit markets, the Fed just kind of pivoted. And and I, I'm just hopeful that it would be nice to see the Fed off the field as a player and as a ref and just sitting back and doing its job kind of from afar rather than trying to have the arrogance of smoothing the the business cycle the way they've done since 08 we'll see if if they do that so so let's go back to your your reports and your special sauce i mean this this economic versus reported earnings I, i mean are there a lot of you know are there a lot of variances between what the street sees and what your reports show or are there, you know, it's, I, I want to really get into, you know, but Blackstone is a big holding of ours. It's a big mega trend in the industry. And, and I know that you also just did a recent report on, on Home Depot. But when I look at your report on Blackstone, it says very attractive, but it, but there are some differences between what the street talks about with, with reported earnings and ROIC and what you guys see. So, you know, f- from your perspective, w- where are you finding the information that that sh- that looks very radically different from some of the stuff that we read just from, from some of the sell side and buy side research? Yeah, so Eric, we're finding it in the, in the footnotes, in the original filings. I mean, we are um, just doing the diligence that everyone should do and one of the things I learned really early on when I was um, on Wall Street is that there's a ratio to make any company or any deal look good. And what Wall Street does, I think, to really undermine and disempower investors is they make up all kinds of different ratios. And even if you call it the same thing, free cash flow, they have different ways of calculating that. There are shorthand ways of calculating free cash flow that are terrible, right? Like, um, Net income plus depreciation minus CapEx. I mean, there's just so many things that that misses, whether it's stock-based compensation or changes in working capital or acquisitions, um, uh, off-balance sheet debt, uh, you know, hidden charges and gains. You know, what, what I sought to do at New Constructs is 
really to, to own the whole supply chain, right? So we own our own data because so we know it's good, right? And then create a standard set of criteria metrics that are the best metrics in the business, but you know that they're done well because you know any metric or any model is only as good as its inputs, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So you know, I read all the investing and financing books, and that's what what Credit Suisse had you know based a lot of its reputation on when they were supporting this project, this Value Dynamics Framework project that eventually became Credit Suisse Holt. Um, and, and Holt is a whole bit different set of metrics. It's not like what we do at all. They just take a data feed. Um, but it, it's the same idea that you want to look at best-in-class metrics. Those best-in-class metrics are economic earnings, which is like EVA, right, or CFROI. And then there's return on invested capital. Those are the two best ways to measure profitability, hands down. And we do that with the best data in the business. And what you'll see is that our ratings, uh, like what you talked about for Blackstone, are all based on the same metrics. And we apply them universally and consistently across close to 3,000 stocks. It'll be all U.S. stocks before the next six months. So what we're doing is research the right way, but we're doing it for the first time with an unprecedented level of scale. And so, um, and it's important, you know, that you have the right metric, like a return on invested capital or economic earnings, it's also important that, that that's calculated in a way that allows you to perform apples to apples comparisons against other companies. And, and we do all that. So um, you know, to answer your question, Blackstone looks good in our system. They got a great return on invested capital um, and re return on invested capital is a super important number. But so is economic earnings because economic earnings also takes into to account the scale of the business, right? Because if you've got a business that's super small and a great return on capital, that's well, great, but you know Walmart's also an incredibly profitable business. Their return on capital isn't as high as Blackstone, but their economic earnings are huge because they're doing it across such a large business, such a large capital base, right? So um, you want to look at both. So th that brings up a question. You know, certain industries inherently will have higher ROICs and sustainable ROICs than than certain other industries. You know. Costco, it's hard to it's hard to compare a Costco who thrives on on high volume at very low margins versus a, another company that that thrives the the opposite. So are, are there certain ranges by sector or by industry? Because you know the, there are certain growth industries, there are certain staple industries or value industries. How does that work? How does that work? Or do you not care about that and you're putting them all in the same bucket? whether you're a growth stock or you're a value stock or you're a, you know, a company that thrives on low margins or high, it all doesn't matter. Well, we break down every return on invested capital to margins and capital efficiency, which is the two things that drive return on capital. People from business schools would know that it's called the DuPont model, right? We have a robust version of that. And we think both matter. Um, at the end of the day, return on capital is what it is for different industries. You know, utilities are going to have in general lower returns on capital. Successful tech companies are going to have higher returns on capital. Um, the bad news if you, is if you have a high return on invested capital is you're going to attract a lot of competition. And it's going to be difficult to maintain that. That's the law of competition. Uh, and, you know, the lower return on capital businesses tend to be in slower growth, more intense competition is already there, right? Large rivalry between the comp competitors. Um, and, and so we, you know, we, we kind of look at return on invested capital as is. We don't put any limits. I mean, the number is what it is. 
but but what we really look what our clients to be able to focus on is not just what the return on invested capital is today, but what the stock price implies the return on invested capital will be in the future. So we're, we're very pragmatic about valuation. We're not in the business of being fortune tellers, right? That's my first question to all my new analysts. Would you rather be a fortune teller or a critic of a fortune teller? Because Mr. Market is a fortune teller for us every day, every minute of every day. He's telling us what, what the value of that stock is every day. And what we do is reverse engineer what the return on invested capital and revenue growth have to be to justify that stock price. So for example, you know, the, the, the th crazy thing about a lot of our zombie stocks is their stock prices imply drastic improvements in profitability, like going from a negative 30% margin to a positive 4% margin, while also growing revenue at 20% compounded annually for 10 years. That's what they got to do to justify the stock price. And that's part of why it's a zombie stock, because not only are the economics of the business terrible, but the stock price implies a drastic improvement in economics. And those two things together are very bad. And that's what you'll see in our system in general. All of our ratings, you know, you're going to get a very unattractive rating if you're both bad economics and super high expectations for future economics. You There's just described the venture capital world. Come on, man. The pitch... In, in the in day one was that we're going to start here and we're going to grow and this curve is going to go hockey stick and it's going to go straight up and we're going to go from losing gobs of money to and and there are certain businesses that absolutely did that over long periods of time but uh it, it is funny when you see some of these stocks and you just literally scratch your head and you think i can't figure out a scenario that's going to to, to take this company to where the the original VC pitch and the current you know quarterly earnings and the you know pie in the sky you know views can take it there. I just can't I can't I can't get there. <laughs> and it's and it's not, and you can't in a lot of these cases because guess what the market's been taken over by sort of retail euphoria and technical metrics and things like that and people aren't paying attention to fundamentals. And that's what happens. Right. And that's why we're seeing these dislocations today. That's why these stocks are coming down 80, 90 percent is because the valuations became disconnected from fundamentals and they, they remain, they maintain that disconnect for so long that people started to believe, well, maybe it didn't matter, or maybe this was going to be the next company to go to Mars. Right. I mean, people were able to create whatever narrative they needed in order to justify valuations. And, and that's something that I recognize from the tech bubble. Eric. I remember, you know, being in these morning meetings and people, really just finding ways to create a narrative that would justify evaluation. And, and that's just a, it's a very dangerous place to be. And we're, and we're seeing, you know, the, the, the really negative results of, of that mentality right now. From a, from an ROIC perspective, then it, it, does your work indicate that a, a high absolute ROIC is a better metric or something that you know might be a lower ROIC that that is that has been growing. You know, let's say a three-year Kager of the ROIC, or is it return on invested capital over weighted average cost of capital? I mean, within that metric, are there certain nuances that that seem to work better? Absolutely. I mean, that's a big part of why we look at the economic earnings number because we're looking at the trend in economic earnings compared to accounting earnings. We want to identify where those trends are opposite because those could be opportunities to, to sell if accounting earnings are overstating economic earnings and vice versa. 
but there's no one perfect answer, Eric. I mean, investing is not really an easy business. That's why there's so many books written about it, right? And that's why, you know, until recently, it was really the, the province of professionals only, right? Um, but, you know, it really depends on expectations. So if you've got a really high return on invested capital company, that's a good company. But it may not be a good stock if the stock price is implying that return on invested capital is going to get even higher. Right. On the other hand, you could have a low return on invested capital company. But if the stock price implies return on invested capital is going to go even lower and you think return on capital is going to go up, well, that could be a good stock because your expectations are higher than the market's expectations. So the, the idea is to kind of take this expectations investing mentality, right? And that's, that's I got that from my old mentor, Michael Mobison, right? He wrote a book without Rappaport titled Expectations Investing. And when I was at Credit Suisse, we built models that were all about expectations investing. You want to buy low expectations, sell high expectations, buy stocks with low expectations for future cash flows or lower than your own and sell them when the expectations get too high. That's, that's what investing is all about. That's investing. Right. Anything else is speculating. There's Do big, people invest now? It seems like everybody's got like a 90 second time horizon. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, you know, they've been led to believe that that works. Right. I mean, when these stocks were going up so much every day for no reason whatsoever and people kept piling in and it became its own self-fulfilling phenomenon, um, they were led to believe that that would work. And unfortunately, it's it's in the best interests of our economy and our and our society that that not work for very long because it, you're just wasting money you're basically just giving your money over to the executives that are going to pay themselves until the business runs out of ground. right so we only have a couple of minutes left if you a couple of questions if you were creating a portfolio let's say you're going to just look at stocks and not etfs for in, for for a second and you were going to use a, a couple of metrics let's say you had access to a database and you were going to use a few metrics to try to give you some you know, some idea of some stocks you might, you might want to do further research on a, can people do that with you? And if, if not, how would you kind of say, well, all right, you know, if you start with a 3000 stock universe, let's talk about a few factors that seem to make sense. And let's whittle that down into, you know, giving yourself a smaller list of companies that you can then research to see which ones are relevant today and for the current environment that we're in, et cetera. How, how would you do that? And, and if your system allows people to do that, let's talk about that. Yeah, no, no, we have screeners. I mean, that, that's what we were designed to do, right? For my institutional clients and also our retail clients can have access to the same thing where you go in you can screen through all 3000 plus stocks that we cover we also cover 7,000 ETFs and mutual funds. Those ETFs and mutual funds are all graded just like we grade stocks. And the ETF grade is an aggregation of the grades for all the stocks it holds. So we're giving you the return on invested capital, the economic earnings, the free cash flow yield of ETFs and mutual funds as well. But yes, clients can come in and screen, depending on your level of membership, uh, can screen on any metric they want. Uh, return on invested capital. We also have and we have, an, you know, the growth appreciation period. That's the number of years of profit growth baked into the current stock price. That's probably the easiest way to measure how high expectations are. That's based on our reverse DCF model. That's more of an institutional tool, but we make that available to retail. You can screen on that. But yeah, the whole idea of this system, Eric, was, was that there's two parts to investing. One is quantitative, one is qualitative. The quantitative is quantifying market expectations and quantifying historical profitability. Right. And the qualitative is then determining whether or not you think expectations are too high or too low. 
new constructs takes care of all the quantitative so that people can spend more time on the qualitative because qualitative is hard. Qualitative is strategic analysis, borders by forces, right? But new constructs gives clients the ability to screen stocks for profitability and expectations based on the stock prices. And it all starts with your ratings, right? So very attractive stocks have great profitability and really low expectations. And so you screen for that and then you can dig down as deep as you want. Every one of our metrics and every one of our models can be validated back to the original filing. That's why Ernst & Young, Harvard Business School, MIT Sloan, the Journal of Economics have all written papers pegging their reputation to the validity of our data, the superiority of our data. So earnings, you know, talk about metrics for a portfolio, I would go with earnings distortion. That'd be my, my top one because this is a cutting edge, never, it's a new value factor. That's what uh, the, the Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan folks got published in the Journal of Financial Economics. Earnings distortion tells you how much companies are overstating or understanding their earnings. We start with that and then I would overlay it with free cash flow yield. Um, and, and you can do that long only, you can do that long short. We've got studies on our website that show how that's how strategies based on earnings distortion alone can generate significant amount of alpha with a great sharp ratio. Interesting. So, I mean, we have a, every year we update our 200 list of, of what we consider to be kind of top brands. And that they could be, you know, mega brands like the Apples and the Procter and Gambles, but also, you know, who has the, the right stuff to potentially be uh, an emerging mega brand over time. You know, they're, they're nipping on the heels of, you know, Etsy is nipping on the heels of some other e-commerce and we update that list every 200. So I, I think I'll have to talk to John about, you know, dropping our, you know, using your system with our 200 so we can really get a good gauge of a lot of those earnings distortions and, you, you know, which companies your system finds very attractive or maybe are under earning or, or over, over indexed to expectations, et cetera, et cetera. So selfishly, I'm super pumped to learn more about your system and how we can be better at what we do analyzing the 200 brands for sure. That sounds great. Yeah. I mean, look, it's meant to be easy because meant to make the quality quantitative part easy because building these models is super difficult. I mean, you know, it takes about eight hours to read one annual report. That's on average 200 to 250 pages. So you get one annual and three quarterly reports every year. That's, you know, 800 pages at minimum, you know, or 32 hours. Um, so that's a lot of work for one company. And so to be able to screen a database where that kind of work has been done across close to 3000 companies, you know, the, you know, we're, we're talking about thousands and thousands of hours of work based on top experts and technology. It's a very, it's, a, it's meant to be a super value added tool, Eric. And, and, I, and I'm doing it not just because, you know, I, I think it's, it's a great business, but because it makes the market more efficient. You know, the top of our original business plan was to improve the integrity of the capital markets. Cause I believe that if, 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 we can make the market more efficient, um, then more people will even care about what we're doing. But at the end of the day, making the market more efficient is what's best for our society. It's what's best for the United States. It's what's, you know, it's what's driven the United States from a newcomer to the world stage just a couple hundred years ago to the most successful economy in the world. Intelligent flow of capital is key, and we want to support that. So, so last quick question, you know, if you look at your, would you say 3000 stocks you cover? So yeah. 3000 us stocks, I'm guessing with the carnage that's happened almost 
across the board, would you say that your 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 holistic three thousand skews more attractive or very attractive at this point? Or are we, you know, I, and I'm sure that that looked different maybe a year ago where maybe your system was, and you can almost, I wonder if you can use your, your system as a signal, you know, uh, in, in November, October of last year, maybe a small amount of the total seemed very attractive. And now maybe a much more higher percentage may screen higher attractive, but I'd love to hear you. Let's, let's end on that topic because, you know, that might be a heck of a, a, a heck of a market signal. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you, you know, for sure um, a lot more companies are, are looking attractive now, but there's still a preponderance of companies that look very unattractive. We've got a really, a lot of really unprofitable companies to think about. It. I mean, you know, I mean, Tesla is a great example. It's like a terribly unprofitable business uh, with a really extreme valuation for a long, long time. And uh, it's gone for a long time. I mean, it's been this way forever to the point where people, you know, sort of believe that maybe it will levitate above, um, you know, unprofitability for who, who knows how long. And, and that kind of mentality, I think, has driven a lot of stocks to be overvalued. Uh, and so, yeah, we're in the late innings, but there's still quite a bit of excess that needs to be flushed out. And I think until that happens, I think crypto is another one like these. They're like entire asset classes that probably need to be reset um, so that people learn what capital allocation is about. You should only allocate capital to businesses that are actually going to generate a meaningful return for you. There's some real utility and cash flow value there. And if you're not doing that, you shouldn't be in the capital markets. And I, I Coinbase is a perfect example. I, I, I have stayed away and I, you know, I have a lot of friends that made a lot of money in crypto and, 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 you know, my, my, I've never gotten anyone. And these are people who know crypto really, really well. I've never been able to find someone that could tell me what it's solving. What is the, what is the problem that crypto is solving? And there's, there was so much you you know, euphoria in that asset class. And, you know, when you look at it now, you kind of realize most of you know there are definitely people who believe in crypto and its long-term viability and and understand the story most people were just chasing yesterday's returns they were just chasing great returns and that was based that was the belief system that that they were believe you know that they were anchoring to and and most of those people have kind of moved on or are in the you know despair phase where they just don't look at it anymore they're not going to sell because it's down a ton and they're just hoping that it's going to come back. And I don't know if it is or it isn't, but I wonder about a Coinbase. Uh, no, agree. You know, and, and Coinbase, we we put it um, in the danger zone, you know, before it's IPO. Uh, we said this was uh, not a good business. And anyway, you know, it was, it was an easy call for us. And I think you're right, Eric, you hit the nail on the head. Most of what has passed for investing over the last 10, 20 years has been chasing returns. Relative strength, momentum, FOMO. YOLO, um, people, you know, with with low cost of funds just saying, oh, why not gamble it? I'm not going to have to pay my rent or my student loan next month anyway. I might as well go gamble. Right. And they've seen the stock market as a way to make money, not as a capital allocation machine. And this disconnect is what's created a lot of overvalued stocks for sure. But I think you're exactly right. People are just in the business of chasing returns. And that's what Bitcoin's all about. Uh, and some of a lot of these super overpriced stocks as well. Well, listen, I, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe interest rates will stay a little higher than zero for a little longer. 
which will make capital allocation decisions all the way from venture to private equity to the public markets just a lot more sane. And your system will certainly add a ton of value for people. So to, to be able to go on your site, it's newconstructs.com. On Twitter, you're the real D train 37. <laughs> we could have a beer and talk <laughs> about that one, I suppose. Um, but but my lastly, you know, make fun of my Twitter handle. Kids, my kids always make fun of that. There you go. I mean, Twitter's Twitter's like the the greatest real time sentiment indicator I've ever seen, right? And it's it is bearish right now, boy. It is just painful to to look on a Twitter feed right now. Everybody's just extrapolating doom and gloom, and some you know the truth somewhere is always somewhere in the middle. But you know, for for people listening to this, you know, go to the website. Take a look at the different plans and the subscriptions. You know, hopefully there's something I'm gonna. I'm certainly gonna spend more time to see, and I'll and I'll talk to John about you know seeing how we can get involved with the 200 index because there's clear value in here, and I I just don't like paying for for sell side research because in most cases I learned you know in '93 that in many cases the best the best recommendations are things that have already gotten crushed and big downgrades have happened. You know, you get PayPal that's, you know, in the stratosphere and then it's down 60% and then they downgrade it. And you're like, well, that, that really wasn't very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> They've probably been talking to their institutional clients quite a bit before that downgrade. So it's, it's, um, it's not news to any of the insiders. It's just their way of um, eventually putting out what um, they know is should have been the answer a long time ago. But yes, you really can't trust sell side research period. Well, let, let's let's just you know anchor to that your your research is leveling the playing field for everybody from the institution all the way down to the retail or the the financial advisor who we listen to and who listen to to us on a daily basis and with these podcasts. So check out the website, check out uh, David's information. Thank you so much for your time. Learned a lot on the ROIC, and that's certainly one of our biggest factors. So now I'll probably dig into it a little bit further in, in a lot of the ways that you talked about. So appreciate your time, man. Eric, thank you very much. It's been great. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.